So I saw a report recently, maybe some of you saw the same thing, that over the last decade at least, democracy is in retreat around the world. Fewer democracies and the ones that exist, less robust. While authoritarianism is on the rise. Now, I, I suppose we're used to that in the developing world. It shows some of our bias, right? But none of us are terribly surprised about what's happening in a place like Guatemala right now. But, but when we begin to see democratic liberties eroded in old democracies like India or Brazil or in newer Western democracies like Hungary, when, when, we, when we see the resurgence of authoritarianism in places like Russia and China, which not that long ago we thought were moving in a different direction, oh, all of that seems to bode ill. The champions of liberty. And yet when you look around the world, it's not hard to understand why, is it? The world seems to be on fire right now. Have you noticed? Conflict breaking out everywhere. Conflict with guns and munitions, but also class conflict and all sorts of riots. And I mean, the place just feels like it's on fire. And when the world is on fire, people will very quickly trade their liberty for security. A strong man who comes along and promises, I alone can fix it, will find plenty of support amidst the resentments and the pain of the populace. At the heart of biblical religion is the promise of the kingdom of God. The untrammeled, universal, absolute rule of Jesus Christ. That does not come as a surprise to most of you. But I put it in this context because I think we've got to ask the question, does this, does this mean at the end of the day that Christianity is really nothing more than right-wing utopianism? The hope of a strong man. Now it's, it's Jesus. So a better strong man, a, a, a nicer strong man, but a despot nonetheless. We're returning this morning, after me being away for a few weeks, we're returning this morning to our study of Daniel. We're calling it Who's in Charge Around Here? And this morning we've come to the climax of the book and a major transition. The focus has been on God's people at home in Babylon where they are exiles and what that looks like, what that means. But, but now, and for the rest of the book of Daniel, the focus is going to shift to getting home from Babylon. And that home is the kingdom of God. And that king is Jesus, the one who I just described, the one whose rule is absolute, unquestioned, un trammeled. Does that sound like a home you'd want to live in? Turn with me to Daniel 7, if you would. 
Daniel 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, it's found on page 789. 789. We're going to be looking at all of Daniel 7, but I want to just read the first verse just so we can begin to set the context. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. All right, so just set the context. Where we ended at the end of chapter 6, we were at the beginning of Darius's reign, the first of the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. But as chapter 7 opens, a lot has changed. We've moved back in time. We, we are now actually prior to chapter 5, which is the last year of the reign of Belshazzar. So we're about 550 BC, and something else has changed. Daniel is the one getting visions. You, you notice up until now, other people get visions and Daniel interprets them. Now, all of a sudden, Daniel's getting a vision, and as we're going to see, he's going to need an interpreter. So I just want you to understand where we are. We're going to put a slide up here on, on the screen. Because, because of the shift, there's been a change of audience that happens right here at chapter 7. The first six chapters, as we saw, were all about God's message to the nations through his people. The messages came as dreams to the kings, but it was through his people. Daniel always had to interpret them. But now, all of a sudden, the visions are coming to his people, to Daniel. Daniel needs an interpreter. So the, so, so the, the thing kind of shifts, and seven's right there in the middle. Now, what we're going to see, and for the chapters going forward, the book of Daniel is all about God's message about the nations, not to the nations, but about the nations to his people. Now, chapter 7 is still in Aramaic, so it's like the nations are getting to still listen in. Now, that, that's going to stop starting next week. But right now, the nations are listening in on this message that God has to his people about them. And there's something else that's changed. We've, we've moved at this point from narrative to apocalyptic. So we'll put up the, the next slide. These next, uh, the, the rest of the book of Daniel is a series of apocalyptic visions. So in moving from narrative to apocalyptic, we've, we've gone from these really cool like bedtime stories. I mean, the first six chapters of Daniel are just fantastic stories, right? So we've moved from bedtime stories to a night at the movies. And they're horror flicks, I gotta tell you. They're scary. They're scary movies. The thing about apocalyptic is that apocalyptic literature is, is not, it's not just about telling the future. Really, apocalyptic literature was, was, was designed to, to pull the curtains back, to, to reveal unseen spiritual realities behind earthly events. And to do that, apocalyptic, and if you were here for the series we did in Revelation, you will have seen this, apocalyptic uses really vivid imagery and like crazy symbols. But the purpose is very clear. It is always to encourage God's people to persevere, to hold on despite the terrors of this world. So chapter seven, which we're looking at today, you can go back maybe to the first slide if you, if you can. Chapter 7 is the hinge. 
Chapter 7 concludes the message that God is going to judge the pride of the nations. But at the same time, chapter 7 is turning and looking forward, encouraging God's people not to give up while they wait to get home. Here's my argument. You should trust Christ's rule. Your hope, just like the people back then, their hope, is neither a kind of libertarian freedom to do whatever you want, nor is it an authoritarian security. No, your hope, your hope should be in Christ. You should trust Christ's rule. Now, I'm going to try to convince you of that as we walk through this chapter, and we won't be walking through it sequentially because of the way it's structured, but we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the world's power, and then second, we're going to consider God's judgment, and finally, we're going to land in Christ's rule, and my hope as we do so is that by the end, you see very clearly that yes, Christ's rule is absolute, but, but oh, that's not cause for fear. That's cause for rejoicing. And it has everything to do with the kind of ruler that he is. All right, well, let's, let's start by looking at the world's power. So first, the world's power. Look there at Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read again, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. All right, we'll stop there. Daniel's vision is of four successive beasts, each more terrifying than the one before. So, so what, 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 are these, what are these beasts? What, what, what do they mean? Well, we don't, we don't need to guess what the beasts symbolize. In the vision, as we're going to see, Daniel actually asks someone to interpret. So he's like in the vision, but there's somebody else there in the vision. And he turns to them and he asks them inside the vision, what am I seeing? What does all this mean? So, so let's look at that. Look at verse 15. 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. Now, skip down to verse 19. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. All right, we'll stop there. We get the interpretation inside the vision. These beasts represent kings and, and empires, multiple kings. And in fact, we've seen these before. These four beasts correspond to the four empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. In, in chapter 2, the, the Babylon, we saw this, the Babylonian Empire, and we're told what the, the gold head was of the Colossus. That's the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire would be succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire, which would be succeeded by the Greek Empire, which would be succeeded finally by the Roman Empire. I can't really point out all the correspondences between these two chapters, but just quickly note the the two-sided bear, he's kind of raised up on one side, the two-sided bear corresponds to the two-part Medo-Persian empire in which one part of that empire was greater than the other. The, the, the four-headed leopard corresponds to the Greek empire, which was divided into four parts after Alexander the Great's death. And the iron of the Roman Empire shows up in the iron teeth of the fourth beast. Now, I could keep going. There are lots more details. But why, why am I pretty confident of this, that we should think of the four parts of the Colossus as corresponding to these four beasts? Well, it's because of the way this entire section of Daniel is set up. And I, I, we're going to put up another slide. This is the last one, I promise. This entire section of Daniel, from chapter 2 to 7, is set up as, as what scholars call a chiasm. It just means a, a structure that goes A, B, C, C, B, A, so that there are parallels. Now, whenever you see something like this, whenever you see an A, B, C, C, B, A pattern, the point is almost always in the center. And that, as we have seen, has been the point of this whole section. God is going to judge the pride of the nations. And the nations that are willing to humble themselves will be saved. 
But those who continue to, to defy the Lord in their pride will be judged. And you see that in the contrasting fates of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But that point is put in a context. The immediate context is God in the midst of judging the nations is going to be faithful to rescue his people. And we saw that in chapter three and in chapter six, as Daniel's friends were rescued, as Daniel was rescued. But the whole thing is put in this larger frame, the frame of the successive kingdoms of the earth that will eventually become the kingdom of God. So we know with, I think, great confidence that these beasts are paralleled to the four parts of the, the Colossus that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter two. Okay, we can get rid of that slide. What's the point of portraying them now as beasts rather, rather than just as that single Colossus that Nebuchadnezzar saw? Well, I hope you heard it throughout. Like we're told over and over again, the point is they're terrifying. They're not just impressive, like you saw in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They are actually terrifying. That's actually where the whole thing ends. When, when we get to the end of this chapter, look at verse 28. After everything's been explained to Daniel, what does he say? This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. I mean, again and again, these beasts are described using language that is meant to evoke terror in us. They crush and devour. They trample and gorge themselves on humanity. And the fourth beast, who from Daniel's perspective is still way in the future, he's the worst of all. Because out of it comes a, a horn, which is a symbol for a ruler who, who speaks arrogantly. Daniel wants particularly to know more about that fourth beast and in particular about that horn. And so we're told in verse 21 that as I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing against them. We're told in verse 25 that, that this, this beast was blaspheming against God, attempting to, to change and, and pervert religion for his own purposes and was allowed to oppress God's people for a time, times, and half a time. Now that stands for three and a half. Three and a half what, you ask? Daniel doesn't say. It could be three and a half years. It could be three and a half centuries. It could simply be a way of saying, oh, three and a half. Well, the common unit of measure of time was the week. And so it's of a period of time cut short. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. What is interesting, though, is that John, in the book of Revelation, picks up all of this imagery and he mashes it all together to describe the power of Rome and Rome's hostility to God's people at the time that John was writing. So in Revelation chapter 13, listen to what, to what John says. Verse 1, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, it had 10 horns and seven heads, and on its horns were 10 crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. 
And then you skip down to verse five. The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which is three and a half years. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. John looks back at Daniel's imagery and and sees the power of Rome displayed against his own people. What do we learn from this imagery? Well, it's tempting to try to identify every single detail with some historical event or fact in the past or maybe coming in the future. But I think that actually misses the point of apocalyptic. And certainly if you've got questions about this, I highly recommend going back and listening to the series we did in Revelation just a couple of years ago. The the point of apocalyptic imagery is that they are what what one person has called transtemporal. Relevant for God's people then, but also relevant for God's people now, and will remain relevant for God's people in the future. So so for example, that that little horn that's, that's blaspheming and waging war for three and a half something, whatever the three and a half is, that little horn could be Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the ruler of the Greek empire, and who persecuted the Jews terribly for three and a half years before rescue came in the form of Judas Maccabeus. That was about 160 BC. But that little horn could also be Titus, the the Roman general, who overthrew Jerusalem in AD 70 and mocked the temple worship by offering up blasphemous worship in the temple itself. Come back tonight to hear more about the verse that refers to that. Or that little horn could be pointing forward to yet a future antichrist. Now you could decide it's gotta be just one of those, but I actually think the better approach is to understand it's all three and probably a few more that we haven't even realized. You see, John tells us in 1 John chapter two that there will be many antichrists who come, who wage war against God's people. And though there will be an ultimate little horn that wages war, the the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, none of that changes the fact that there are powerful people at work today, right now, against God and against his church. And I think that is the point of this imagery. In a prideful, fallen world, human government, that is to say humanity in its its collective power, in its collective organization, in its collective endeavors, is never neutral towards God. Humanity in its organization is never neutral toward God's people. Now, the book of Revelation shows us in some of its imagery that sometimes human government comes along and it is whorish. It is like a whore, tempting God's people to compromise. Daniel's emphasis is that human government comes along and it is beastly, 
beastly in its oppression, beastly in its power. Now, that is not to say that government is bad or always bad. Human authority, we know, even in the form of government, is a good gift from God. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 13, that it is a gift from God to restrain evil and to reward the good. But human government is composed of fallen human beings. And it never gets past that. And so human government will always be lacking in justice. Human government will always be guilty of injustices. Human government will always be trying to bring power to itself and will not like it when you're loyal to something else. Human government is most happy when our allegiance is to it and it alone. If the nature of sin is self-exaltation. And I think that's fundamentally what sin is. Then collective human enterprise will inevitably concentrate that and amplify it. I mean, what government out there doesn't try to accumulate power? What, What government out there voluntarily submits to limits? on its power? What what, what government out there will will relinquish its interests in service of another? What government out there pursues God's interests rather than its own? Yeah, there isn't one. Where government composed of unfallen intelligences, this would not be a problem. But I don't have to tell you that ours is not a government of angels. So what does that mean for us? As we recognize that at its fundamental nature, government is either beastly or whorish, to take the image from from Revelation, or most of the time, both. What do we do with that? Well, I think one thing, and I think it's it's appropriate this is following Thanksgiving week, one implication is it means that this American experiment that we here in America are engaged in, in limited government, that's an experiment worth preserving. That's an experiment worth keeping. Some of you all will have heard of this thing that's gaining some popularity out there called Christian nationalism. It's the view that we should use the levers of government power to make this a Christian nation, to enforce Christian values on people who are not Christians. It's it's tempting, right? Because that, in some ways, would be a much nicer country to live in. But remember what I said first? Every human government, including a Christian nationalist human government, is composed of fallen human beings, and it never gets past that. I'm I'm reminded of the the famous scene in uh, the the play, A Man for All Seasons. William Roper, who is a young protege of Sir Thomas More, who is basically the prime minister of England. William Roper uh, is, is really upset 
that the laws of England, laws like due process, the rights that people had, were, were, were getting in the way of going after some really bad people. And, and so Roper says to Thomas More, so now you give the devil the benefit of law? Sir Thomas More replies, yes. What would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? William Roper says, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And friends, that's kind of what the Christian Nationalism Project is all about. We're going to get rid of due process. We're going to get rid of certain kind of universal liberties and rights in order to go after some really bad people and bad ideas. And it sounds good. But listen to Sir Thomas More's reply. Oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law is all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. I'd like to like vaccinate all of you against Christian nationalism, if I could. Because it sounds promising. Oh, it sounds like a good idea. Oh, make it more Christian nation. But friends, every government is beastly. Even a Christian nationalist government. And what you think you've won in going down that road will only come back to devour you in the end. Because at some point down the road, even with a Christian nationalist government, and you think of yourself as a Christian, you will become the enemy of that government if you remain loyal to Jesus. And on that day, that Christian nationalist government will come after you. So one implication of this is that we should preserve this American experiment, imperfect as it is. Here's a second implication. We should stop looking to government to do the work that only the gospel can do. Government policies cannot make this a Christian nation. L laws cannot make people Christians. Only the gospel can make a man a Christian. Only the gospel can make a woman a Christian. And only the church can preach that gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's stop looking to government to do what actually we are called to do through the faithful proclamation and display of the gospel in our lives individually and corporately. When this vision comes to Daniel in this first year of King Belshazzar, it's been almost 70 years of exile. And as we're going to see, Daniel and the others, they, they know what, what Jeremiah said. They know 
that the exile is about to end. There's great hope that is almost over. And then this vision comes. What does that tell Daniel and what does that tell us? It tells Daniel, it tells his people, it tells us that the people of God are going to have to wait a lot longer than 70 years for the kingdom of God to come. Oh, the exile might end, but the kingdom will not come at that point for them. For Daniel, as he sees in this vision, there are three more empires to come, and he has no idea how long that's going to take. I think that's helpful for us because we stand in a similar position, don't we, as believers? We don't know how long until Christ returns. What we know from Daniel's vision and from the rest of the witness of the Bible is that while we wait, suffering and opposition lay ahead. Our call, believers, is the same as their call, to endure in faithfulness as long as God leaves us here at home in Babylon waiting for the day he brings us home from Babylon. So my question for you is, are you living in this world as if you're living in an airport terminal or a neighborhood? I was thinking about this because I've spent a lot of time in airports lately. There are a lot of similarities between an airport terminal and my neighborhood. There are great restaurants, places to eat. There are places where I can go to work. I got lots of free Wi-Fi. Um, there, there are comfortable places to sit. There are even places at the bigger airports where you can go and lay down and get a good night's sleep. And I do all of that in my neighborhood. I go to great restaurants. I go to work. A place where I can hang out with friends, where I can get a good night's sleep. You know what the main difference between an airport terminal and your neighborhood is, I'm only in the airport terminal trying to get somewhere else. I don't intend to take up residence in the airport terminal. I don't want to stay there. Yeah, I do a lot of the same things in an airport terminal that I do in my neighborhood. Man, I live in my neighborhood. I'm not going anywhere. I've settled in. Brothers and sisters, we should live in this world, fully engaged, doing all the things that you should do in this world, but we should be living in it as if it were an airport terminal. Yes, we're going to be engaged. I'm going to work. I'm going to sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat. I'm going to do all the things that I do in my neighborhood, but I'm not planning on staying here. I'm not settling in. I don't want to deed to like some corner of PDX International. Not interested. What does your life show? Does your life show that you are living in this world as if it's your neighborhood and you're going to be here a long time? Or does, this, does your life show that you are living in this world, fully engaged, but it's like an airport terminal and you are looking forward to going somewhere else? The world has power. And it's terrifying. Our hope, however, is that God is going to judge that power. 
So let's consider second, God's judgment. Look at verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then. Because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking, as I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. So, In one sense, we don't need verses 9 to 12 to know that God rules over history. The fact that he could reveal four successive empires in advance is already telling us that. Uh, You you could see it in the first eight verses, the the unseen voice that gives direction to the beasts, the the unseen hand that that rips the wings off of the the, the griffin, the lion of Babylon, and humanizes it, which I think is actually a reference to that humbling and probably like conversion of Nebuchadnezzar into a worshiper of God. So we didn't need 9 to 12 to know that. But there comes this distinct moment when God's reign is established unequivocally. That's what 9 to 12 lets us know about. While Daniel is watching, The fourth beast is speaking arrogantly, blaspheming God, waging war against the saints, and all of a sudden the scene shifts, and we're in heaven. Thrones are set up, and God, the ancient of days, takes his seat upon his throne. That image there in verse 9 and the the beginning of verse 10 is is of absolute purity and, and holiness from the whiteness of his hair to the flames of his Uh, of his movable throne. But it's also an image of judgment. You see there in verse 10, a river of fire is flowing from God's presence. The throne room, it turns out, is a courtroom. And court is called into session there in verse 10. Uh, There are a myriad of angels, like officers of the court in attendance, The evidence books are opened, and judgment is rendered. You see there in verse 11, as Daniel watches, in in the midst of the horns, arrogant speaking, the beast is killed. It's a judicial execution. Its body destroyed in the river of fire. And although the other beasts, those other human governments, continue for a time, we see there in verse 12, their dominion, Their their power over God's people is ended. Now, all of this gets confirmed in the interpretation that Daniel receives beginning in in verse 15. But as we look at the interpretation now, you're going to see a new detail is added. Look Look again at verse 17. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. And I want to read the verse I skipped earlier. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom. 
and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now look at verse 21. As I was watching this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient of days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the most high for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. Now go down to verse 26. But the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. Three times we're told that the court will convene at the time of the fourth beast, the fourth beast will be judged, and the dominion of all of the beasts will be removed forever, and instead the kingdom of God will be given to God's people, never to be taken away from them again. The fact that he says it three times, I think means he wants us to pay attention to this point. As a result of God's judgment of the world's powers, the kingdom, the kingdoms of men are given to his saints, to his holy ones, his people. Friends, God reigns over the kingdoms of men. He gives them to whom he pleases, when he pleases. He rules over history. And and people often wonder, what is God up to? They look around at the world today with all the wars, all the conflict, all the riots, all the protests, and they look around and they go, what is God doing? Here's what he's doing. Here's where he's leading history. His purpose is to judge the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of this world, in favor of his holy ones. Did you see that there in verse 22? That's the language that was used. Judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. God's purpose is so that when he finally renders judgment, the whole world will see very clearly that as he judges the kingdoms of this world as guilty and worthy of destruction, and as he gives that kingdom to his people, everyone will see that that was just. That ruling in their favor is not the ruling of favoritism. It's, It's the ruling of, yep, you're guilty and you're not guilty. The world is to be seen, and it takes history to do this, But the world is to be seen as arrogant, rapacious, devouring, trampling. The world is to be seen as oppressing and almost prevailing against God's people who are repeatedly, you see here, described as holy, not not worthy of this kind of treatment. So that when the world is judged and the kingdoms of this world are handed over to his evidently holy people, Every mouth will be shut, and there will be no complaint, no charge of mistrial, no complaint of this wasn't fair or right. I asked at the beginning, since Jesus is going to reign, is that, is that the kind of kingdom you'd want to be in? Well, here's one reason you'd want to be in that kingdom. He won't be reigning alone. Over and over and over again, we're told in this passage, the kingdom's going to be given to God's people. They are going to reign with him. Because, of course, this is what we were created to do in the first place. 
we weren't just saved from our sins by Christ. No, we were restored and will be fully restored on the last day to what Adam was supposed to be but failed. Adam was made to rule over creation. And in saving us, Jesus Christ is restoring us. We don't rule now. Friends, the day will come if you are in Christ, if you are in his kingdom, that you will be restored to what humanity was always meant to do in the first place, not to be servile underlings in somebody else's kingdom, but to reign as saints over the new creation. Now, since that's our future as Christians, this is why it's so important that today we live as God's holy people. Jesus called us to be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Jesus described our lives on this earth as as lives that were modeled after his. his. We're we're to be people who, who love our enemies, people who pray for those who persecute us. That doesn't sound like evangelicals today at least not the way I see them represented out there. I trust that is not the way you are representing out there. Because because this life of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us should, should flow from the fact that we were once God's enemies and he loved us. That's the way Paul puts it in Romans 5. We've been saved by the gospel but we should be changed by the gospel to love others even as we have been loved. So to my baby boomer saints who love Facebook and posting on Facebook, which I really want you to stop, But do your posts demonstrate a love for those that are opposed to the gospel? Or do they just demonstrate your anger? And to my millennial and Gen Z brothers and sisters who hate Facebook, is there anything about your life that would invite persecution? Is there anything about your life that would cause your friends here in a city like this to be uncomfortable around you? You see, this gospel cuts against all of us. It it should be changing all of us. I do want you to notice that in this judgment, against the beast. There's no contest. There's no struggle. There's no protracted battle in which the outcome is uncertain. And if you've been around here for a while, that should not surprise you. We saw that in the book of Ezekiel, the battle against Gog and Magog, and all of a sudden it's over, like before anything happens. We saw this in the book of Revelation. In the midst of the horns, arrogant speaking and waging war against God's people, right in the middle of it, when it looks like he's prevailing, He's killed and given over to judgment. 
You see that in verse 11. You see it again in verse 22. You see it again in verse 26. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of that scene from Indiana Jones, you know, where, where he's been fighting all these bad guys and then this really super bad guy shows up and he's like, like, like whirling with swords and everything. And, and Indiana Jones is like totally worn out and all he's, got a, all he's got left, it seems, is a whip. And you just think, how, how is he gonna? And then he just pulls out a gun and shoots him. <laughs> yeah, I think that's gonna be what it's like on the last day. It's going to look like there's no hope. It's going to look like the battle is lost. And then, yep, it's not. God reigns. He reigns in judgment and in salvation. No one can resist his power. He needs no help in accomplishing his purpose to give his people the kingdom. Brothers and sisters... God does not need us to win the culture wars. In fact, if we take our text seriously today, we are not going to win the culture wars. What does verse 21 say? As I was watching this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. That doesn't sound like winning the culture wars. It sounds like losing them. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, we should be engaged politically and socially. Of course, we should work for better policies rather than worse policies because better policies are better, you know? And we'd all like to live in a place with better policies rather than worse policies, of course. But we should never confuse those battles with this one. Biblically speaking, there are no Flight 93 elections. Never has been, never will be. Biblically speaking, there are no apocalyptic candidates. Every human government, including the one headed by your favorite politician, is beastly. every single one, and God will judge all of them, including the one headed by your favorite candidate. God will judge. He will bring in the kingdom on his timetable, not ours, and when he gives his kingdom to his people, it will not be, be because we turned out the vote. It will be because he decided that the time is fulfilled and it's time for the beast to stop speaking arrogantly against him and his people. God will judge the world's power. What will replace it when he does? What will replace it finally is Christ's rule. Christ's rule. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed." 
I saved this for last because this entire passage, as you've noticed, is structured as a vision and then an interpretation of the vision. And every part of the vision is repeated in the interpretation, except this part, except verses 13 and 14. They kind of stand there alone, the arrival of one like the Son of Man. This is the very center of the passage and its climax, the moment when the rule of the beastly kingdoms is taken away by God forever and given to the Son of Man. And we're told that the rule of the Son of Man is glorious. His dominion is universal. Every people, nation, and language will serve him, and his kingdom will never end. So who is he, and when does this happen? Well, just notice the details that Daniel gives us. We're told that his reign begins just after the judgment of the fourth beast. I've already explained that the fourth beast, both in Daniel and in Revelation for that matter, is the Roman Empire. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a stone not cut by human hands grew into a mountain that filled the earth and replaced all the human kingdoms. Now we learn in Daniel 7 that that stone is a man and that man is Jesus Christ. How do I know? Well, Jesus claimed to be that man. It's not an accident that Jesus referred to himself in the Gospels as son of man over 80 times, if I counted correctly. Since Daniel's day, the Jews had considered that phrase, son of man, to be a messianic title, referring to the king who would come and usher in the kingdom of God. But Daniel's son of man is no mere man. He's not merely a human. Things happen here that should not happen to a human. He receives glory and worship. Just as the psalmist in Psalm 2 said he would. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, the Messiah. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. When Jesus claimed to be the son of man, he claimed to be that son, that son of Psalm 2. Right before he was handed over to the Romans to be crucified, the Jews asked him, are you that that one from Psalm 2, are, are you the Messiah, the son of the most blessed one? We read the passage earlier in the service. Do you remember how Jesus answered? He said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel 7. The Jews heard that and they knew exactly what he meant. And so they convicted him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. The Romans crucified and buried him. But friends, what Daniel 7 is giving us in this apocalyptic vision is, is like tearing the curtains aside so that we can see what was really going on in that moment in the day that followed. It would be centuries before the Roman Empire would fall. 
But that day, that day on the cross, the powers of this world were judged and defeated forever. You see, Jesus didn't die as a martyr for a cause, nor did he just die as like an example. You should love people like like me. See where it gets you. No, Jesus died as a substitute for his people. He died as their king. And because he had no sin, his death was sufficient to answer every claim against us, to defeat every power that holds us captive, including the power of sin and Satan and death itself. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities that animate this world's beastly powers. He disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them at the cross. How do we know he triumphed? Well, he didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he got up from the dead, witnessed by over 500 people. And after 40 days, he ascended to heaven on the clouds and was we're told, hidden from his disciples' sight. But though he was hidden from their sight, Daniel 7 shows us what happened next. The the moment that they lost sight of him. What happened? Daniel 7, 13. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Suddenly, the crucified and risen one is ushered into the presence of God. And because of his obedience, and obedience even unto death, he is given the kingdom to rule forever. Here's here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. But we must be very and exceedingly clear about what the gospel means. It means that Jesus is Lord. It means that he's been given absolute rule without qualification and without exception. His rule is universal, every language, tribe, and nation. His authority is untrammeled. There are no qualifications to it, no hesitations, no exceptions. To follow Jesus is to follow him. It is to submit to him as king. Which brings me all the way back to the question that I started with. Can I trust this kind of authority? Can I I trust this king when every other example in my life of just even limited authority gets abused, much less absolute authority? Would I want to live in this guy's kingdom? Well, friends, consider the kind of Lord and King he is. His Lordship is absolute, but it is a Lordship of love. His his reign is supreme, but it is a reign of righteousness that began 
by dying for you to set you free from your sins and a reign that will not end until he has completely accomplished that purpose in you. Think about the moment he chose, Jesus chose to quote Daniel 7. It was the moment he was going to be condemned to death. Every authoritarian ruler disposes of his enemies first. Jesus died for them. Your hope is not libertarian freedom. Your hope is not authoritarian security. Friend, your hope is Jesus. The one who will come again with the clouds of heaven to judge, but who came first in the weakness of your flesh to die to set you free. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow this king, to submit to him, and to know the kind of freedom that only he can bring. There'll be guys at the door afterwards. Talk to them on your way out. Come find me down front. I will be down front. Come talk to me. Talk to the person you came with. But do not leave without considering what it means to submit to this king of love. Christian, you've already entered into the freedom that is the lordship of Christ. He's now given us our marching orders, go into all the world, right? Because all authority has been given him. We've seen it in Daniel 7. So go make disciples of this king. And don't be afraid because this king is with us always, even to the end of the age. How do we get home from Babylon? Well, we get there because our God is the ancient of days. And he has judged not only our sin, but he has judged the world through Christ. And he has given him the kingdom, and he has given us to Jesus. And so he has given us the kingdom. The nations may rage, but our Savior King rules. And that's a rule we can trust. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and think about the things that keep you from submitting to Jesus as king. And just compare those things in your mind to the love of King Jesus displayed in the cross. Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts, that we would submit to King Jesus, knowing that this is not a servile submission, but a submission to the King who died for us. And then, Lord, we pray that we would live out courageously and faithfully, regardless of what the world throws at us, knowing that our King reigns. And we ask this in Christ Jesus. Amen.